0: That's chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. VGW by loss. See terms and conditions. Eighteen plus.
1: The following podcast contains explicit language. I want to tell
0: you my secret now. I see dead people. Silent breathing people. Need my sister and my daughter. Rosebud. What's in the box?
1: Hello, and welcome to another Slate Spoiler Special. I'm Forrest Wickman, Slate's culture editor, and today we're spoiling uh, the movie that no one asked for, which is another Star Wars prequel uh, solo, A Star Wars Story. Here to talk with me about the film are Slate editorial assistant, Marissa Martinelli. Hey, Marissa.
2: Hello, Forrest.
1: Uh, and Slate browbeat editor, Sam Adams. Hey, Sam. Hello. Uh, So, Sam and I, we saw this uh, like a week and a half ago, and we're just commenting that it has gone completely out of our heads. Uh, Sam, I know a little bit about what you think, because you already reviewed it for Slate. Marissa, I know very little about what you think of this movie, so I'm very curious. uh, Would you send people to the latest Star Wars film?
2: I saw this movie two days ago, and it is already going out of my head, but I would absolutely send people to this movie. It was forgettable, but it was so much fun.
1: And Sam, uh, based on review, well, I I don't know. You were certainly negative, more negative on it than just about any other Star Wars movie. Nonetheless, would you send people?
3: Um, I would probably send them properly prepared. Yes, I mean it, it's. I kind of enjoyed it when I was watching it, and then found myself kind of getting angrier and angrier at it as I thought about it more and just it, its complete like lack of any compelling reason to exist. Um, but I didn't not enjoy myself while I was watching it. So. That's my recommendation, such as it is.
1: Yeah, I also mostly enjoyed this movie. I think I was more underwhelmed by it than I have ever been by any Star Wars movie, uh, which it's a little hard for me to separate that from the fact that um, I saw the prequels as a, I guess, a tween and then a teenager and, you know full disclosure was first in line at my lo- local multiplex for tickets for uh, the Phantom Menace so uh but nonetheless like i i found it kind of difficult to hate or to love um starting frankly right from the first i don't know 5 seconds of this movie where You know, any Star Wars movie, usually you can count on it to at least start with a bang with the big brass burst. Mm -hmm. And in this case, there is no brass burst and it just goes straight to the whimper of, uh, I believe it says, it was a lawless time. And then there is no Star Wars scroll. And then uh, we meet the young version of our hero. Marissa, what was our hero up to? So many. Finally, we can find out what Han was up to 20 years before the first Star Wars movie.
2: Well, Han was making trouble on the planet of Corellia. We find out that even as a young man, he's working for a crime boss, in this case, Lady Proxima.
3: Who's like a giant worm kind of thing voiced by Linda Hunt.
1: Yeah, she kind of reminded me of who, who is the hookah-smoking caterpillar in Alice in Wonderland. So
2: Yeah, but why? <laughs> Explain yourself.
1: Just oh, I mean, in physical appearance. I guess, wasn't Lady Proxima basically just a giant, slightly menacing caterpillar? Although I, I concede that this caterpillar was not smoking hookah. Nonetheless, it was like a many legged creature standing upright okay. with our hero cowering before it.
2: I guess I thought of her as more of like aquatic since she is submerged in a pool of water. Uh, and has an aversion to light but i'll i'll take that <laughs> under advisement
1: that's true and i and and we do get a good bit here i think i i think Sam, I know you agree with this, that the thermal detonator bit here is one of, A, one of the better bits in the movie, and B, one of the kind of rare glimpses of what must have been this movie as it was originally intended by uh, directors Phil Lord and Chris Miller, you know, who also did the Lego movie and did the surprisingly great 21 Jump Street movies and originally directed this movie before it was taken away from them by Disney and given to Ron Howard. And so we get this bit where Solo... Um, you know, in classic fashion, being somebody who pretends to be a swaggering rogue, but is actually just a goober, uh, picks up a rock. Yes. <laughs> tip,
2: Laura Bradley. Uh,
1: yes. Uh, if anybody would like to read more about how Han Solo is a goober, I refer them to a Laura Bradley post on Slate from a couple years ago. Um, so, yeah, Solo picks up a rock and just basically pretends it's a thermal detonator, fooling absolutely no one. And then
3: Lady Proxima says that's just a rock and you made a clicking noise with your mouth. Which is right. the real sort of like Lord Miller like meta movie? Like not only does he do this ridiculous thing, but that someone is like, you just did this ridiculous thing that no one believes, and then somehow that's like actually his plan for her to notice that, and then he like throws it through the window and it breaks, and she's allergic to sunlight or something. But yeah, yeah that she's
1: is, like a vampire all of a sudden. Yes, but that vampire that is canidular. one of the,
3: one of the moments that feels very like has that sort of Lord Miller level of kind of like meta sort of self awareness winking at itself thing which the movie um I mean I can imagine two hours of two hours and however many minutes of that would have gotten pretty tiresome but it, it's Or
1: or it would have been Guardians of the Galaxy, right? And right. It, as is, I feel like this movie kind of gets out Guardians of the Galaxy to buy out Guard Sorry. <laughs> By Out Gardens of the Out Galaxy. Yes.
2: I agree with Sam though. I think they said that about 30% of Lord and Miller's contributions stayed in the film, and I would bet money that the first few sequences were the Lord and Miller sequences because they were very self referential and winky, and I think that might have gotten old really quick.
3: I mean, it is, it is hard to tell in some ways because, I mean, Ron Howard um, really kind of came into the middle of the production. And I think there was one role that was recast, um, Paul Bettany, who plays the the villain in this movie, whose name Dryden is Voss. Dryden Voss. Um, that was originally going to be a motion capture character played by uh, Michael K. Williams, who's uh, you know best known as Omar on the wire. When they reworked the schedule after Ron Howard took over, he was not able to... Uh, turn up. So Paul Bettany, who had worked with uh, Ron Howard on some of the um, Da Vinci Code movies, I guess, are kind of filled in um, instead. Other than that, there's, I think, a lot of almost total continuity with when Lord Miller were shooting it, including retaining the same cinematographer, Bradford Young, and obviously the sets and things were already built. So it's not immediately obvious when you're looking at any one scene, for the most part, whether this is a Ron Howard scene or a Lord Miller scene. And that 30% estimate is kind of who knows how accurate that is, or what how it's actually calculated? Um, and it's possible that you know some of the stuff that Lord Miller shot was some of the action sequences, which it would make sense to shoot first. And those don't have a huge flavor to them to begin with.
1: Yeah, which is too bad. I mean, you would you what you want from them is the humor, and they're uh, I don't know the action sequences and Lego movie are totally serviceable, but that's not what people remember the Lego movie for, uh, or the 21 Jump Street movies, um, and and so it's kind of too bad that most of the humor in this t- really fell flat at our screening. I don't know if it was the same case um, in your screening, Marissa, but I, I it really jumped out at me during uh, one moment when it was very clear that the characters were laughing at each other's jokes mm-hmm. more than the audience was, which is... Never a good sign.
2: No, it's not a good sign. And uh, some of those moments of humor, especially in the beginning before the tone of the movie had sort of been established, uh, really fell flat in our screening. I mean, the thermal detonator gag, I think, is got the loudest laugh of the entire movie. And it comes very, very early on.
0: and each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BDW. Void. we prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. All
1: right. So before we get to Dryden Voss, uh, we also have to get to our love interest for this movie. It starts very much kind of like in Medias' relationship Uh which I found made it a little hard to really care about this relationship we don't we don't really see like what brought them together in the first place um, and so I didn't have a great sense of either their chemistry or what is supposed to make Kira um, appealing uh, Kira we should say is played by Amelia Clark so Sam uh, where are solo and Kira when we first meet them
3: they are I, I think the suggestion is that they Grew up together as orphans or something. Uh, this feels a little bit like one of the scenes in *A Christmas Prince*, where you see her like writing the notes. It's just like orphans or something? Question <laughs> <laughs> those mark. Those would basically be my notes from this movie if I if I took those sort of notes. Um, but I think yes, it
2: was more explicit than that actually, yeah. because just before we see them together, there's a scene with a bunch of little British children who are like street rats. And they're fighting over who knows what, and one of them's like, "It belongs to me because I'm holding it." Yes. And I thought that was sort of, the idea was. Then we pan over to Han and Kira, and we get the idea that, like, that's how they grew up.
3: Yeah. So yeah. So then anyway, they have they've certainly like grown up together on the streets, the mean streets of Corellia. Um, oh, and actually, I the that opening. Not crawl that you mentioned, but the right. opening text actually uses the word yeah, the mean, "mean streets,", streets. Mm-hmm. Um, which is like a Raymond Chandler reference, and would like Could what that Scorsese. Too. Yeah, what that's what what either of those things would be doing in this movie is a complete mystery. Yeah. It is neither um, Chandlerian nor Scorsesean nor any other sorts of Ians. Um, <laughs> excuse me. Um, but yes anyway so they have they have grown up together on the the main streets of, of Corellia, and they are involved in a heist um which Han uh, once again kind of ends up in hawk to this uh, kind of slimy invertebrate creature he's just got a, he's got a type obviously um and it's going to be enough to smuggle them off this world which is sort of not exactly a you know prison planet or something, but it's clearly like you need some sort of pull or the money to bribe somebody in order to cross the border, which is one of the few moments when this movie actually feels like it's being made now. There's this big scene at the right. beginning where they are trying to um, basically, you know, sort of illegally emigrate off Corellia. And they are um, Han makes it out, the door is shut before Kira um, can go out and then there's this sequence where uh, Han decides to join the Imperial Army. Just, he needs money, he wants to learn how to fly, and that's the most obvious place to it. And that was the moment watching the movie where we was like, oh, this is interesting. Like, we're actually going to get some stuff that we haven't seen before. And then it's just smash cut to, and there's a caption that says, three years later... And Han is, like, crawling through the mud and it's, you know, sort of full metal jacket for about 30 seconds. And then he's, like, finds some other soldier played by – or someone posing as a soldier played by Woody Harrelson. And they're pulling off another heist and he's back doing his old thing with them. So that, to me, is – so emblematic of what this movie is doing, which is just kind of kind of pretending or keeps kind of like toying with the idea of doing something a little bit different, even the way that that opening, opening text just sort of looks like a crawl, but isn't actually a crawl. And they made a big deal with Rogue One about how this is the first Star Wars movie without a crawl. Um, and then with this, they're kind of like, well, what if not a crawl, but words? Um, <laughs> so it's, you know, that sort of trying to Very, very vaguely do something different, but actually making sure that the fans don't get mad at you um, is kind of the heart and soul of this movie to me. And that is really what it is trying to do. And, uh, you know, it is successful at kind of, you know, hitting the right buttons and and pleasing you in the way it intends to please you. But it also is just I was so aware watching that, you know, no risks are being taken and every sort of every fan service that can be serviced is serviced.
1: Yeah, I think there is, like, in that um, brief sequence where Solo is, I guess, enlisting in the army, there is both uh, yet another, like, potentially sort of political moment, which is the fact that, um, I guess, their stormtroopers keep saying, do not resist, which is one of those things that probably would have been in any Star Wars movie made at any time, and yet at this p- precise moment in history feels like, uh, ah, maybe sort of that is an a attempt at trying to be a little more timely and there's also a another, I think, kind of rare moment of personality and knowingness that really works in this movie. It might be another Phil Lord and Chris Miller thing where, as you mentioned in rev- your review, Sam, we see like a recruitment video for the Imperial... Army and as part of the recruitment video, they're playing the um, Imperial March uh, from the original Star Wars films. So,
3: yeah, but at a slightly more kind of like
1: upbeat, like major
3: key right. rendition. Um, yeah, I mean that's one of the few good and one of the few like actually underplayed jokes yeah. in the movie where there isn't like Bugs Bunny leading into a to frame with a sign that says joke.
1: Yeah. Um. Uh, so okay, Solo. He's gone in into the army, and now then he's now trying he's to. He's
2: actually named Solo.
1: Oh right, we, oh, haven't, well, we, we haven't. We, we all collectively of...
2: tried to forget. Speaking of the mugging worst at the camera, the <laughs>
1: so one of the <laughs> biggest problems of this movie, and one reason I think it really does suffer from, uh, you know, prequelitis, is that it just tries to give the origin story for like every little aspect of you know Han Solo arcana, and even things that you just never would have cared about, or a question you never would have thought to ask. So, for example, it gives you the origin of his surname right. which i think logically most of us just assumed was his surname i don't know if there's anything from the larger uh, star wars universe but marissa how do we at last discover the origin of han solo's surname
2: well up until the escape from corellia he's just han the character uh and then it's when he goes to the recruitment you know sort of facility for the empire that uh he's asked you know what's your name and he says han and the recruiter says, "You know, who are your people? What else?" Uh, which, first of all, is very strange because there are tons of people in the Star Wars universe with only one name. Uh, but this is an excuse for him to say, "I have no people. I'm alone." And the recruiter gives him the last name Solo, which was just so—I mean, I groaned aloud. And they really—they really He's really
3: like Han. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> Han loner, solo, yeah. Hon, hon, Han, no friends. Han, alone guy. No, yes. I and mean, it's just. I mean, it, it's like literally if you came up with the stupidest possible explanation of how Han Solo got his name that's the actual scene in this movie
2: but I hate this because part of the fun of the original Star Wars is that everyone has these names that are yeah. so literal I mean Darth Vader is just invader with the in chopped off Luke's, or Luke's father Sky, Luke Skywalker or father I mean, I
1: mean, but yeah, yeah Luke it's Luke just Skywalker. a place where
3: people have names like Skywalker and Solo and that's normal
2: yes I found this very demythologizing
1: well and then I think it's around this time where we get another version of this which Which is, so Han Solo, now Solo, uh, meets for the first time Chewbacca. I think it's in the muck of this kind of World War I-ish trench warfare scene. Because I distinctly remember that Chewbacca has the, the precise look of a wet dog. Where he looks like kind of surprisingly bony in a way that any a furry animal does when they're wet and so then they start talking and and you kind of get a little bit of how their language works and then Chewbacca gives his name and then Han Solo says I'm going to get the exact quote so we get the full you must, you must do justice to the elegance of the screenwriting here yeah <laughs> He says you're going to need a nickname because I ain't saying that every time three syllables and thus too long was born the nickname the famous immortal nickname of Chewie.
3: Yeah, and it's like, has anyone ever watched a Star Wars movie and be like, huh, I wonder why Han calls Chewbacca Chewie?
2: Well, that, this movie's full of it. I mean, especially yeah. with the names, they really lay into this. I mean, later down the line, when we finally meet Lando Calrissian, who we'll get to, their first interaction is all about... The introduction between them and Lando says, oh, Han Solo. Yeah. Which, of course, he does in later movies. But did anyone really need an explanation for that? I definitely did not.
1: I thought that was at least a sort of, like, kind of funny wink and... and and re- con- Like, you know, I feel like Star Wars fans for decades have puzzled over the proper pronunciation of Han because nobody quite gets it right and George Lucas didn't care enough about dialogue or acting to really, like, preserve continuity when it came to things like this.
3: I sort of like that as a little bit of an in-joke, the way that, like... The prequel is kind of like, because famously in the, in the first movie, they say that Han Solo did the Kethel run in, in under 12 parsecs. And right. the parsec is actually a unit of distance, not speed. And then the, there are later movies where they correct that. And then I think in the prequels, George Lucas uncorrected it. <laughs> and it's like, no, actually, the parsec is a unit of speed in this universe. Go fuck yourself.
2: Something very relevant. Which is yeah. the so right I'll...
1: answer. Yes. Like, the Star Wars is supposed to be silly. It does not. There's nothing about Star Wars that has ever been scientifically accurate. You can't hear explosions in space either but like we hear them in star wars I, I don't know that that this the the idea of making star wars into hardcore sci-fi is uh just misunderstands the whole spirit of star wars so, i
2: agree but i think that the in jokes to fans i think we're doing the writers a disservice by giving them a pass on jokes like oh this is how solo got his name this is why Chewie's called chewy because there are moments in this movie that are fun references to other movies. For example, when Han first meets Chewbacca, it's in the context of him he's accused of deserting the empire, and he's tossed into basically a monster's lair. And it's very evocative of the scene with the rancor. In fact, I think people in my screening were like, oh, it must be the rancor. And then as the monster emerges from the shadows, it's Chewbacca. That's very funny, because Chewbacca is basically a giant monster walking around, but they're friends. And I thought... Nods like that were much smarter and
3: yeah. more fun. And one of the things I like that they didn't explain is that the kind of the, the tension in that sequence is, is resolved because they basically thrown Han into this pit to get, you know, killed by this Wookiee monster. And, they, and the tension is resolved by the fact that, like, Han speaks Wookiee. And there's no explanation of that. And I love that there's no explanation of that, actually. It's just like, yeah. oh, he's just he's been around He grew up in the streets, you know, and, he, and he's just like he speaks it very badly. Mm-hmm. but it is actually subtitled in the movie for i think the first time and he, then he says to chewbacca like hey let's pretend to have a fight and actually like knock out the supports of this thing and like get the people who are get the guards upstairs and then we'll both escape together and i sort that i sort of liked
1: yeah a lot. and and the the translation is specifically this sort of like very non-native it's English, like where it's pigeon like, me wookie, pretend yeah. fight yeah. you yeah <laughs> Um which is good i think any examples where there are any instances of this kind of thing where they're actually leaning into the silliness and um trying like instead of trying to explain the f- silliness just like making it even more nonsensical i think <laughs> that those bits are generally pretty good um okay so we th- i think this movie from here on out primarily consists of two heist sequences uh, with two slightly different crews. And here is when Han Solo meets the first crew, Marissa, who is in this crew.
2: In this crew is uh, Woody Harrelson's Tobias Beckett, who we are told, if not actually shown, is a sort of notorious bounty hunter type.
1: Which is actually, now that we've been talking about names, like an oddly straightforward, just like... Very English name for a Star Wars That's character. True. I'm not really sure what how he got his name. His, I look forward to his origin story. His wife a
2: has a very century? ordinary name too. She's Sandy Newton's character is Val Beckett. Right. Uh, and they are joined by. You know the
3: Beckett's, Tobias and Val. <laughs> yes.
2: Dinner at the Beckett's. Uh, they are joined by a not very ordinary character. Named Rio Durant. Um,
1: is that the John Favreau character? That is
2: the John Favreau character.
1: The a four armed CGI pilot, right? Right. It's kind of monkey ish.
2: Yeah, I think that's fair to with say. With a couple
1: extra arms. And uh, also, he talks
2: sort of jokey. And, kind
1: of the rocket raccoon of this movie, but without being. I don't know. I, I, he, yeah, I he, found him pretty forgettable. He's got that I sort I of generic like like
3: Hollywood Queens accent that they like to do when they want to sort of signify the class that characters are working right. class. <laughs> yeah. So. Uh like, working... hey, I've got to fly use guys in this plane now.
1: <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah, so I guess he's like maybe the joke is sort of that he's they took a grease monkey and in this case he's like a literal monkey except for with a couple extra space arms. Uh and Chewy and Solo they it, like manage to join into this group. They they kind of reluctantly take them on board. Mm-hmm. And then uh thus begins the great train robbery of uh the first great train robbery in a, in a star wars movie um sam why don't you walk us through that sequence
2: coaxium
3: yes yes well this is the uh they are trying to rob a shipment of coaxium which is kind of the the all-purpose widget in this movie it's basically a unobtainium a fuel, yes Vibranium. Yeah, exactly. yes exactly it is the fuel the thing guffinium. that everybody wants um the sequence also I, I, uh, I think not introduces but it was I think the first time you get a real glimpse of Enfys Nest, who is kind of the secondary antagonist of this movie. It's kind of another, the rogues rogue who, you know, steals, is basically waiting for them to pull off this daring heist and then will come and, and steal that from them. And in fact, um, does, you know, manage to successfully foil it, although they end up just blowing up this, uh, coaxium instead of actually, um, Stealing it. And then uh, Don, once again, is is sort of in debt to uh, a, a creature, as he so often ends up doing. Um, we lose Tandy Newton's character in the course of the sequence as well. Uh, she dies. And
2: John Favreau. Yes. It's a bloodbath.
1: And jo- yes, it is. Yes. Isn't, again, this is the second movie in which this has happened recently. Isn't Val the first person to die? Like, in other words, the black character is the first to die? Or, I mean, maybe the John Favreau character dies first.
3: No, I think no, she dies first because he yeah.
1: dies. Yeah, she gets blown up.
3: And then, yeah, so she is, as, uh, as Tandy Newton's been pointing out, she's kind of the first, like, dark-skinned woman in the Star Wars universe. Um, and she does not last very long. I mean, I, I re- she brings, like, a great kind of presence to the movie that I miss because she is just a real... She plays the character as a real kind of, you know, hard-edged... Um, just a real kind of battle-hardened woman who's just been through a ton of shit and and is, um, you know, and and is not... Um,
2: She's very no-nonsense.
3: She's very no-nonsense Is not have this kind of, like, roguish swagger that everybody else does. She's just kind of all business. Um, and even when it turns out that she has to, she eventually kind of, you know, blows herself up to save the others, and it's just like, well, this is the thing that I have to do now. I'm going to do it. Um, so long.
2: It's been yeah. real, she yeah. says, or something like that. <laughs> Or it's been a blast or something like that. (laughs) And the movie seems to
1: just keep expecting us to, like, really care about these new characters who we just met and don't.
2: I mean, I I agree. She was good in it.
1: Right. Well, so (laughs) I think after I saw this movie and before you saw it, Marissa, we were talking about it. And you mentioned one reason you were excited about it was to, like, see the first I don't know a major black major female, black character, female yeah. character in a Star Wars movie. I guess like one who is not just doing motion capture might be the distinction with like Lupita Nyong'o. Right. Uh as Maz, Maz Kanata in the in the new movies and I just kind of like I think I did a terrible job, <laughs> but I tried to keep a little bit of a a poker face or what is the equivalent of poker in this movie? Sabak. A sabak face uh, because if this movie wanted any points for this? It does not deserve them, in my estimation. I don't know how you felt about this. No, personally.
2: I think, I mean, even with John Favreau's character, they were both, I think I was expecting this to be the core crew of the movie. And yeah. for both of those characters to be killed off so soon was very surprising. Um, I would have liked to see more Val Beckett. They, this movie made some, this movie, in terms of the greater picture of women in star wars introduced some really interesting characters um and she turned out not to be even the main female character right. um we got we had amelia clark as kira uh we had my favorite the only female droid
1: in yeah. a star wars movie
2: uh one small step for droid kind um but
1: who's uh, l- named leet right or, or do they yeah. call her L337 they, they, L3. they
3: call her i don't i don't know but, if they ever say L337 they call her L3 for L3 sure.
1: right yeah. which i assume is some sort of like joke or reference to leet speak it does
3: uh, that would be my guess yeah
1: which for listeners who are not aware is like uh the term for a type of uh slang in video gaming where basically you just like replace all of the um vowels with numbers i think is essentially how it works and there are some other things and anyway leet is how it's spelled l337 so
3: yeah so instead of calling someone a noob you call them an n00b stuff like that yeah so l337 seems like leet speak for leet
1: so before we get to l3 you mentioned you know the other complicated female character who we are reunited with here uh right
2: the job goes south and so tobias Beckett is sort of at his lowest point, although he gets over the death of his wife really, really fast. Yeah. He barely has time to mourn, which is fine. They have to get on with the movie. But
3: mm. uh, uh so we see uh in terms of an origin story, this is the first time in the movie that I actually see Han Solo fly. Something, um, which is a little, you know, little bit of a thrill there because Rio Durant, the, the original pilot, we mentioned the forum, John Furrow's CG character gets killed and then Han has to take the controls. Um, he does not not manage to get out of there with the Corellium intact, but everyone else survives. So it's a partial... The cor-
2: Coaxium intact. Oh. You're mixing like, up oh your imaginary <laughs> substances. What am I doing You've here? invented a new one. Right. It thing. works just as well.
1: <laughs> I'm going to put me in the Wookiee hole.
3: <laughs>
2: yes,
1: well, sorry. and so... Are we supposed to think that Han... Th- th- this this might just reveal that I've either I either missed something or have already forgotten something. But I found that a lot of the movie I was wondering whether Han Solo is actually like already a good pilot or is th- whether this is just an example of him talking a big talk as with the rock that he claims is a thermal detonator without actually being a great pilot yet. That's and I question. felt like there wasn't really a payoff there. Like I was sort of left wondering like later he... Is doing a, you know, when he flies the Kessel Run, he does a great job, and it was kind of unclear to me where that came from. I mean, you could see how he would have become a great driver on, um, you know, the planet he grew up on, where he's always hot hot wiring cars and stuff, like a, you know, like a young George Lucas, like he grew up. Uh, Drag racing cars, but I couldn't figure out how he became a great pilot if he was indeed a great pilot.
2: I don't know that that's really clear. I mean, when he does take the controls, John Favreau is like, wow, well, you sure are a good pilot. Right. Um, but it's hard to tell whether it's luck or skill. I thought most of the talk about what a great pilot he is was to build up to the joke of when he finally joins the empire. Because he's like, I'm going to be a great pilot. And then we cut to him in the infantry. He never yeah, got his yeah, chance.
3: Yeah. Right. I mean, the, the movie wants to do this thing where it's sort of kind of simultaneously, you know, re-mythologizing and then just a little demythologizing as well. So when he does finally do the Kessel Run, which which we'll talk about. But, I mean, he ends up, he does do it in um, almost, uh, almost 12 under 12 parsecs, they finally decided they're going round, to round down. But also, like, they don't—he doesn't do it really fast because he's, like, this amazing pilot. They have this whole encounter with this weird, like, gravity creature, and then they end up using just a little bit of the coaxium as, like, super fuel. And that shoots them out of there, and that's why they do it fast. But it's not because he use like—he flew an amazing flight. issue so they found this, like, kind of—they basically, you know, gave it the NOS boost at the end, and that was why they got out of—you know, that's where the speed came from.
1: Fast and furious in space. Yeah uh okay so we have to get back with kira oh yes, where okay. is kira which i don't know if you said is spelled with a q and an apostrophe These it's like q i q apostrophe ira uh where is kira marissa
2: okay so the job goes south and tobias beckett has to go back now and tell his super scary boss dryden Voss, who um is the leader of or not the leader but a leader of uh a crime syndicate, Crimson Dawn, that he lost the shipment of the and, and
1: he is played by Paul Bettany with
2: scars. We should describe down his how face. he looks.
1: Yeah, he's kind of he kind of looks like I don't know what maybe somewhere in between a human and Darth Maul with kind of like red scars down his face, but not like full out all red and black.
2: Sure, <laughs> um, so yeah. Foreshadowing, Marissa. Foreshadowing, very subtle. Uh, yeah, he I think to me looked mostly just humanoid with scars. It, it wasn't as particularly creative yeah. look for him. It was fine. Especially knowing that the original actor cast, Michael K. Williams, was supposed to be like a half lion or something like that oh. uh, in motion capture. But of course, we did not get him as our villain. Uh, but we find out when Han and Chewie decide to go with Beckett back to Dryden Voss, we find out that Dryden Voss's right hand is actually Kira, Han's long lost childhood sweetheart.
1: And this sets up this conflict about whether Kira will, her true allegiances will be with Han or whether she will ultimately, whether by force or by choice, remain uh, loyal to Dryden Voss. And here is when they hatch their big plan for the second heist that will save them all, which is what, Sam?
3: <laughs> this is, it is the famous Kessel Run. They are um, – once again, they have to go to another planet that I'm going to forget the name of. But basically they need they're to –
2: They're going go- to the castle Mines. No, they're
3: going – yes. So thank you. They're like the mines, right? Well, they're
2: mining coaxium theoretically.
3: Yeah. So they're going to these mines to retrieve the coaxium. The problem with this is that it is in sort of its – in its unrefined form it's extremely volatile and in fact will blow up if they don't get it there um within a an insanely quick amount of time no man can possibly find that fast <laughs> so yes yeah, so they need to pick up the coaxium um and get it back to Dryden Voss in a in a short enough time that it will not blow up and
1: kill them all and that is the castle run and but first they're going to need a fast ship they're going to need to what is the origin story <laughs> of Han and the Millennium Falcon.
2: Uh, Well, they're going to need a fast ship, and they hope to find an ally in one Lando Calrissian, played in this version by Donald Glover, uh, who I thought was great, but I'm interested in everyone's thoughts, playing a very, like, Billy Dee Williams yeah. imitation. Um, and in order to convince him, or they, at least they want to try to get the ship, Han challenges him to a game of sabacc, and uh, it does not end well for him.
1: Right, so we knew from the original movies that Han won, I believe it's in the original movies, right, that um, Han won the Millennium Falcon, like, in a bet with Lando, which kind of sets you up when they first start playing Sabacc, that, like, oh, this is going to be the the game that Han wins, Mm. and then, in fact, he loses, but then they still team up, because Lando... Uh, you know as you put it at one point sam lando is the solo of solo so lando at this point is also kind of talking a big talk about um all the stuff that he doesn't really own and such and so he cuts a deal with them to give them the falcon in exchange for some percentage of the whatever phlebotonum fibrinium (laughs) uh, mcguffin
3: flubber yeah
1: yeah uh Okay, so out of this deal that they make with Lando, they not only get the use of the Millennium Falcon, but they also get the beloved character, new character that we already already began to discuss, who is L3. Marissa, tell us about L3.
2: I love L3, probably not as much as Lando seems to love L3, since it's implied that they've had a romantic relationship. Um, she is a droid. Uh, as in she's a robot, it's the Star Wars equivalent of a robot, who is very into droids' rights. Uh, this is sort of a an overarching question within the Star Wars universe of sort of how much are we supposed to think of droids as humans or in some, like R2-D2 can sort of be thought of as a robot dog in a lot of ways as pets. Um, but droids do not really have rights in the Star Wars universe. This is introduced right away in the original Star Wars when droids aren't allowed in the cantina. And L3 is just sort of an unapologetic, you know, droids deserve rights. She breaks up a droid fighting ring or tries to when we first meet her. Right, She's basically
3: the the Dobby of
2: Solo. Yeah, I think
1: that's a good comparison. We learned something about how, like, her, like, loyalty programming has been disabled mm-hmm. or something. And then also, uh, she and Lando have a unique, and maybe only mildly ambiguous relationship, but I think basically it's a romantic relationship. Don't ask too many questions about it, but
3: it is sort of implied. Um, there's been some you know, talk recently about uh, whether or not um, Lando Calrissian is pansexual in this movie, which is basically not really in the movie, but now they're kind of trying to say, like, the character is anyway, which is their version of making the Star Wars universe kind of more diverse. It's just kind of telling you the character's Are even though it's not actually in the movies, but there is, there is the implication in this movie that he has had some sort of congress um, with this droid. Yeah, which raises a lot of questions.
1: (laughs) Right? We, it's, it's to me, it's a little weird in terms of this movie. So, who, which, which creator was it of the movie who said that he is pansexual? It was uh, like one of the screenwriters. Yeah. yeah. Yes,
2: but it was in response to a direct question. Yeah. I don't think that they were going around asserting, oh, this yes. is pansexual Lando, the movie. I think that it was in response to, is Lando pansexual? And they were like, sure.
3: Yeah. yeah. And, then, and then Donald Glover was like, well, yeah, there's a lot of stuff in space to screw.
1: And I'm like, <laughs> I'm, I'm not sure that we want to think of it, but okay. Um, yeah. So maybe they sort of stumbled into this. I do yeah. think it's like, uh, it's revealing that we really get the first. Um, confirmed human-droid relationship before we get the first human-human relationship where they're the same sex. Which, I mean, that like seems we,
3: like that could be another one of the sort of loopy Lord Miller jokes that you're just supposed to kind of knock you on your ass and not really ever explain. Right. Like, let's just imply that Lando and the robot had sex and then never talk about it again and just have you completely confused.
2: I think if uh, you get beyond the silliness factor, though, this was a very sweet relationship. I mean, when she eventually dies... Or dies, you know, quote unquote, to they sort of download her she into like the Millennium She like becomes part of Falcon. the ship, yeah. yeah. Uh, I mean, you know, Donald Glover really played that seriously yeah. in his despair over losing her.
1: Yeah, uh, I'm glad that we got a true Lando L3 shipper on <laughs> <onto> the podcast. <laughs> well,
2: I was thrilled to see a female droid. It sounds very petty, but this idea that all of the droids in the Star Wars universe are... I mean, first of all, they're droids, so you can think of them as genderless. Um, But sort of this idea that they have humanity and that with that can, you know, they can also be gendered. It was nice to have a woman voicing a droid for a change.
3: So and we should mention that the L3's voice is done by Phoebe Waller-Bridge, the creator and star of Fleabag and um, also
1: more recently of Killing Eve.
2: Who did not know what a droid was when she went into her audition, apparently.
1: Yeah, I mean, it didn't hurt. I, she, I think, is a big part of why this character is so appealing. Okay, so L3 starts a uh, droid and uh, Wookiee uprising, um, you know, around the Kessel spice mines where they're trying to get their, what are we going to call it this time? MacGuffinium, I think <laughs> I may be already used, I'm not sure. It's um, trending,
2: it's catching on.
1: Okay. Um and you know sort of despite that and sort of di- because of that I think they succeed and they bring it back to Dryden Voss uh but then what happens Sam
3: Uh well there are a bunch of um kind of double crosses and switcheroos before them um one of which um speaking of of character being sort of unexpectedly or uh, or sort of newly female as we find out that Emphis Nest who is uh, we find out that Enfys Nest who has been this sort of um I don't know, sort of, sort of Boba fetish yeah.
2: figure mm. in this. Yeah, was, um, this masked this, pirate, yeah. Yes, this
3: sort of menacing masked pirate. Um, she she I'm giving it away now, but she takes off her helmet and it turns out, you know, to be this sort of, you know, red-headed, you know, fairly young woman, um, which is a, an interesting reveal for me. it kind of reminded me a little bit of the way um I guess it's Iron Man Three played with the character of the Mandarin. Right. Um, where you kind of you know, the presentation of the character makes you think of one thing and then the movie completely pulls that assumption out from under you and then it also turns out that she is not in fact a villain but is, is sort of, um, you know, I guess a freedom fighter of one sort or another. So then um, Han kind of, you know, foreshadowing or basically kind of doing again his arc from the original trilogy ends up kind of switching allegiances and um, going over to her side and deciding that in fact they need this um coaxium, Grellium, mm-hmm.
1: Right. This, and at this to, to point, fuel, yeah.
3: to feel their cause and help them uh, fight the empire.
1: And at this point, the movie basically becomes like a David Mamet movie where it's double crosses and triple crosses and who's uh, fooling who. And I think, Marissa, I might need you to walk me through this as somebody who saw it more recently. They go and they basically plan on making Dryden Voss think that the phleboton of v- vibranium, the uh, is fake when in fact it is the real stuff.
2: Yes. It's very much the, Oh, the heist has gone terribly wrong. No, it hasn't. Yes, it has. No, yeah. it hasn't. It,
3: it,
1: it's the very rare single cross. <laughs> <laughs> right. <laughs> it's the double backflip, which just ends up being back, right. So, so,
2: so emphasis, Nest uh, makes this passionate plea uh, to Han to sort of flip and, and to, Beckett as well, although Beckett decides that he's, you know, in it for himself. Um, Beckett, who has been spending the movie saying never trust anyone, uh, but who Han has come to sort of trust, decides that he wants to make the delivery as planned and give it to Dryden Voss. And Visnes makes the plea that, you know, no, it should be used for a good cause. And so Han decides that it's revealed anyway, they bring the coaxium to Voss, but it turns out. Voss has been tipped off by Beckett that they're up to no good. Right. Uh, so th- basically the audience is led to assume as well that they're bringing fake coaxium to Voss.
1: And um, Voss makes some comment about, you know, when he thinks that it's fake, he's like, wow, and it's just like an incredible mimicry. Like, you could hardly tell mm. it from the real Like, thing. yeah,
3: that's the sort of the moment when he, like, reveals his dastardly plan. He's like, oh, I just have one question. You know, how did you make this fake right. thingy um, And, of course, we think Kira yeah.
2: is the one who double-crossed Han because that's what's implied. And then there's sort of the dramatic reveal of Beckett, like, coming from behind the doors. Yes. Like, it was me the whole time. Yeah. <laughs> Mustache twirl. Um, but... Then we find out that the coaxium is real. It's not fake coaxium. This was all an elaborate setup so that Enfys Nest could ambush all of Voss's goons uh, when they go to try to get the quote, you know, real coaxium. But it turns out those cases are empty. Did did that about sum it up?
1: (laughs) Wow. Uh. Well, there's isn't there another double cross here because then they managed to kill Dryden Voss. And Kira basically takes over. And at the moment where we think that Kira and Han might be teaming up... Kira reveals that her true allegiance is actually to Marissa Dryden.
2: Dryden Voss's boss, Darth Maul, or I believe just Maul as he's called at this point. Wow, I did not he know
3: that. No he, like, he was is, like Sith. stripped
1: of his title? So like, please, Sith.
3: Darth Maul was my father. Uh,
2: so, <laughs> so of course, Darth Maul is um, the very memorable villain from the Phantom Menace who was totally wasted on that movie. Uh, yeah,
1: they gave him a double-sided lightsaber and then only used it for one movie, which was a big mistake.
2: He's just the coolest-looking character. He was apprenticed to the Emperor, and they just they cut him in half at the end of the movie, and they washed their hands of it. But Darth Maul actually lives on in my beloved Star Wars animated series, The Clone Wars. Um, he comes back, despite being cut in half, through... It's a long story. It involves talking snakes and witches and all that. Um, but he actually... We learn that he is fueled by revenge for Obi-Wan Kenobi, who cut off his legs. He's not too happy about that. And he builds this enormous crime syndicate for himself by exploiting the underbelly of the galaxy and the fact that the Jedi are fighting a war. And so for me, this was actually not a very exciting reveal in this movie that Darth Maul is the big bad. Because as soon as they said the word syndicate, I was like, oh, well, based on the timeline, I just have to assume
3: so he is, still, yeah. he is still cut in half, though, just He to be clear. has
2: uh, magic legs. No. <laughs>
1: <Okay>. <laughs> They're like robot legs, like, right? It's kind of like the logical extension of the fact that Star Wars characters frequently get their arms cut off in movies and have them replaced by robot arms. Both oh, Anakin yeah. and Luke, that happens, too. And also, you get the scene at the end of Empire Strikes Back where Luke f- falls down this giant can- canyon uh, while... With, while having only one arm and he survives so I always knew I feel like even when that movie came out I knew that there was some possibility that Darth Maul despite being cut in half might similarly
3: survive just as Luke had um, I think my question is having done this now with, with Deadpool 2 last week and this time what movie it involves someone going getting cut in half are we going to talk about next time <laughs> So, walk hard. Walk maybe. hard. Yeah, the Dewey Cox voice. Maul does not
2: have creepy baby legs, <laughs> for which I am very grateful. <laughs> yes. uh, no, he's like a true Star Wars character. Who I'm glad they brought him into the live action movies because I hope this will get more people interested in the Clone Wars and Rebels, where he has pretty major arcs. Um, they also, for this movie, got Sam Witwer. I hope I'm pronouncing that correctly to reprise his voice role as the character. And he does a really good job,
1: right? Because originally in the first movie it was uh, Ray Park.
3: Ray Mm -hmm. Park.
2: It's Ray Park in solo. But the voice is being done by Sam War. Oh, okay. Ray Parker who's
3: kind of best known as a, as a sort of stunt man who right played Which the is a
2: nice you know sort of synergy bringing yes. everything together. Um, but yes, I, I really hope people are interested by this and how he survived.
1: It's interesting. I had a slightly different reaction to that, which is it was one of a few things in this movie. and Sam, I know from your review, you felt similarly about this where there was kind of there was such a lack of closure um, at the end of this movie in a lot of ways that it fell um less this is this is like a maybe a sort of fine um and tricky and somewhat self-contradictory distinction to make but it it felt less like a star wars movie and more like a tv episode um that is kind of saying tune tune in for the next movie Mm -hmm. which which i say is like slightly self-contradictory because admittedly these are movies where you know for the first um 6 of them it was always called you know or after the first one they were declared as episodes and the inspiration was you know these like serials on tv that always did end in cliffhangers so i don't want to complain too much about it but i did find it a little disappointing.
3: There's a weird quality to me, that kind of topsy-turvy quality to have Solo coming after The Last Jedi um, six months later, because the, sort of the idea behind doing these kind of spin-off Star Wars stories is that you'd have the kind of ongoing trilogy, you know, kind of three movies that were narratively linked to each other um, and very much in the vein of kind of classic Star Wars movies. And then you would have these spin-off movies, which are, you know, mostly going to be self-contained and those would be able to you know, we could give those to different directors and maybe even different kinds of directors who were not white men. Um, They could be kind of different tones or styles from some of the Star Wars movies. And instead, we got The Last Jedi, which is a uh, while fitting into the chronology is is extremely different and distinct visually in some really great ways, really feels like kind of a Ryan Johnson auteur movie, even in the context of of the larger story, despite the fact that it's a middle movie in a trilogy, has a very firm beginning and an end. Some people have actually said you could almost end the Star Wars series at the end of the Last Jedi and it would still be satisfying in some ways um and then you're getting these spin off movies which Uh, Lucasfilm and Kathleen Kennedy has been really, um, you know, very uh, kind of heavy-handed in making sure that they fit into the established things. They kind of famously um, took Rogue One away from the director in post-production and had a lot of it rewritten and and reshot by the the original writer, Tony Gilroy. This one, they— you know, started even further actually in the middle of production and changed directors and seemed really at pains to make something that just feels like a Star Wars movie. Um, so, you know, while initially we thought this was going to be kind of sort of, you know, wacky like heist adventure that was not really kind of weighed down by the larger mythology in the way that some of the kind of mothership movies are, um, instead we've gotten something that feels really strained in its efforts to, to fit in with what already exists and you know, as you say for it, I mean, really feels like, you know, the end of this movie is is only lacking a kind of teaser for the next on Solo. Solo
1: will return. Yes.
3: Other than that, I mean, yeah. the ending is completely open and it's very obvious that this is meant to launch a whole new cinematic universe.
1: Yeah. I mean, I think that is why, you know, I was not upset about the ending of um, Last Jedi or I don't recall being upset about, like, the ending of Empire Strikes Back, which is totally a cliffhanger. But this these movies have been... Um, discussed and I believe even advertised as quote st- like standalone movies and this is not really a standalone movie uh, it does not stand alone or on its own and so I think it felt a little bit like a bait and switch to me even though I could see why you were more excited about it as somebody who cares more about the like uh, larger Star Wars universe outside of the main movies.
2: Right. I think it's worth comparing this to something like Rogue One, which was very much a closed loop. Right. Um, and which literally like all the new led- characters,
1: spoiler alert, die at the end of Rogue One. <laughs> well, and then it like literally ends with the very beginning of you know, Star Wars Episode Four, the original Star Wars movie.
2: Well, to me, Rogue One excelled because it introduced all these new characters and there was real emotional resonance when they died. Right. This movie was not precious about killing off its new characters. I mean, at the very end of the movie, Han is forced to kill Beckett uh, and he shoots first, which is right. sort of the, the joke of the encounter. Uh, as much as I like Woody Harrelson, like, I wasn't broken up about Beckett's death. I didn't feel like we got to know him beyond sort of a more generic... We're told throughout prototype. the movie not
1: to trust him, and so it's like don't get too attached to this guy,
2: right? Uh, I just think that this movie it didn't really feel like it was leading anywhere to me, as opposed to Rogue One, which was very specifically leading up to, and uh, you know, the original Star Wars, A New Hope, uh, and explaining a little chunk of the universe. This was more sort of here is Han Solo for two hours, which and- is fine for what it is, but I think you know Rogue One was much stronger in terms of fleshing out a particular niche of the Star Wars universe. And
3: there was that great moment in Rogue One where you're thinking, well, okay, this is a Star Wars movie. Like, obviously, the characters get out of it somehow, and maybe we just don't see them in the rest of the trilogy, even though they're hanging around as heroes of the of the Resistance somewhere. And there's that moment where, I think it's uh, Ben Mendelsohn says, you know, like, close the shields or whatever. And, and, you, and you realize, oh, like, oh, shit, they're actually not getting out of this like they're all going to die and that's obviously something that's never happened in a star wars movie before but they just kill the entire cast at the end of the movie Um, and i don't think there's any moment in solo where certainly where you feel that and i don't i don't think it really does anything that hasn't been done
2: i actually i did i was sure as soon as she came on screen that kira was going to die Mm -hmm. it was from the very beginning as soon as we saw her there was this big question mark over why is this woman never mentioned again you know in Later in Han's life, and so the assumption, the easy brute would have been to kill her off. I do like that at the end of the movie, rather than, you know, her sacrificing herself for Han or something like that, there is the implication that she lives on and becomes a crime boss.
3: Well, yeah, she I mean, she kind of sacrifices herself in the sense that... um you know, they kill Dryden Voss and she knows that she's going to have to take his place. Um, you know, the first time they see each other after their separation, you know, Han says something like, well, you know, I'm glad to see you got out. And she just kind of, you know, looks at him like you don't really you don't understand what the deal is. And I she have kind a of, different she, reading on you know, that. Really? I thought
2: she was sort of waiting in the wings and poised to take his place rather than oh, really? you know, okay. covering his tracks or anything like that. Uh, I saw her as sort of a successor. But then again, she's I'm sure this will be her character will be explored in some other form of media, whether it's one of the books or one of the TV shows,
1: yeah. I mean, it'll be interesting to see how this movie does, given that while I think, for all of history there's been an assumption that a new Star Wars movie will of course make well over a billion dollars this movie has gotten more backlash before it came out than just about any Star Wars movie I mean I guess you'd have to go back to um, the second and third like to to go back to the prequels Mm -hmm. um, in in terms of finding a moment in which the like future of a particular branch of the Star Wars universe was so uncertain nonetheless I I kind of expect that it'll still make a billion dollars
3: I mean it's gonna make a ton of money I mean you know and it is like kind of pleasing in a very low grade way I'm gonna end up you know taking my nine year old daughter to go see it and I'm sure she'll be you know excited to see Han and whatever else although she's not a I think you know I told her they were making you know Star Wars movies that kind of explain stuff that happened behind the prequel before the prequels and she was just like why why would you like she she lives in a wonderful universe where these things don't just need to be made um but what you know however much you enjoy these movies or don't i think it is somewhat infuriating to be sitting here before the movies even open and talking about like well maybe that'll make sense in the next movie it's yeah. like can we just which is not even announced yet let alone scheduled um so to you know, only be already be talking about like, well, maybe this will make sense in like two or three or four years when they, whenever they maybe get around to shooting another one is can we
1: like, can we just have this movie as its own thing? Well, we should start wrapping up soon. But the one thing I think we haven't really done is talk about, uh, I guess the two performances in this movie that were most anticipated. Um, The first one being Alden Ehrenreich as Han Solo. And the second one being Donald Glover, Uh, as Lando Calrissian. I don't know which of you wants to take which... But let's start with Aaron Reich as Han Solo. I found him, you know, mostly charming. There was a lot of sort of bad buzz about his performance going into this movie. And I think it's just a really hard um, tightrope to walk when you, and this is something I think they both struggle with a little bit, where you have to convincingly convince, the you have to convince the audience that you are the same person that that other actor played. And so Alden Reich does the like, classic Han Solo smirk a lot. And I think he pulls it off. And then other times, like, you have to do that without having it shade into outright mimicry. And I do think it sometimes feels a little bit like that. Um, I don't know how you guys thought he pulled off that balance or not.
2: I thought he pulled it off uh, maybe a little better than Donald Glover. But I also think that even though he very much is sort of Han Solo but younger and we don't really see as much growth, I think that he, he convincingly pulled it off. He had his moments of beyond smirking and moments of vulnerability for the character that were beyond just, you know, Harrison Ford imitation.
1: Yeah, there's a sense of that his char- there's a sense at some point in this movie that his character arc is going to be this is how so if Han Solo is a goober who always pretends to be the swaggering hotshot rogue um, that this is gonna this is gonna be the story of how he like learned to put up that front,
2: but he's already fronting.
1: Yeah, he's already fronting a little bit at the beginning. It's like that's an idea that they maybe sort of had, but couldn't hold on which to. Which again long is the like, enough, like indecisiveness in this, because I mean, yeah. can you
3: make a whole Han Solo movie in which Han Solo isn't Han Solo? Hmm. Right. Because you know,
1: it is a little frustrating sometimes when it's like, oh, he doesn't feel like Han Solo right now, especially early on in the movie. Sometimes it's like, oh, he just feels like Luke Skywalker or one of these more like dewy-eyed, you know. There's a line where it's like he just wants to fly among the stars. Yeah, which so somebody like,
3: says it to, to a point like, oh, your secret is like you're a good man.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know. Um, yeah, I think it's – I mean
3: it's, it's worth adding to that as you were saying that there were kind of reports that his performance was not good and it is worth – you know, saying that those reports were um, pretty deliberately and obviously leaked by um, Lucasfilm in order to kind of, A, to give them cover in case the movie ended up being a turkey, but then also to kind of justify their decision to yank the original directors and replace them. And then there were some other stories planted more recently about like what, you know, supposed disasters Lord and Miller were on the set and who knows it. And these were all kind of anonymous crew members, Um So who knows how much to kind of actually credit those, but uh, I do. And one of the reports is that they would hired an acting coach for Alden Ehrenreich because supposedly his performance was so disastrous. Um, You know, I think it's pretty good uh, as we're saying. I mean, I think the idea. Sorry to
0: interrupt.
1: The idea of Alden Ehrenreich once again facing down an acting coach is just an image I cannot uh, (laughs) uh, think about without thinking of the wood that it's worth for. So simple, like the, the. Literally, he became famous for a scene in which he played a bad. Actor yes. being coached by, I guess not technically an acting coach, but a director and the Caesar. Were,
3: yes. Um yeah. So I, I think he does a good job of kind of suggesting Harrison Ford without playing kind of the Muppet Babies version of him. I think Donald Glover um either guy kind of got pushed into that. I mean his character is just much more the way he plays the character. And granted, this character kind of has to grow up to be Billy D. Williams, who's like maybe the suavest person in the entire Star Wars universe so there's a lot to live up to there but he is playing him as kind of I think I refer to him in the review as Embryo Billy D. Williams I mean he's he's just he's got he's, he's dropped his voice about an octave and a half and he just seems really kind of you know slick and sexy and I mean it, it works you know it, yeah. but it's just um, it is Kind of for me a little jarringly out of key with the rest of performances in the movie, which are not so highly stylized. I think it works um, because the, his character, because Lando is in the movie so little, right? Uh, which is kind of you know as you were saying, I mean, kind of how Han functions in the original trilogy. I mean, there's not a ton of him, and he, but he's always the person who kind of you know he has the kicker to the scene. He's the one who kind of comes in and everybody's like, oh, we have these lofty hopes and we're going to do these great things, and he's the one who comes in and is like, yeah, good luck, kid. Um, So Lando kind of plays that function in this movie.
1: Okay, so we didn't know before seeing this movie that there is going to be some, that, that Disney seems to be planning some version of like Solo 2 with Star Wars Story 2. Marissa, will you go see Solo 2 with Star Wars Story 2?
2: I mean, yes, I will see any Star Wars movie, but I think that this one was genuinely enjoyable and I would be interested in how they would follow it up.
1: I think
3: I should point out that Marissa wore Star Wars earrings to the taping. Oh, wow. I miss this. Your your,
1: (laughs) your earphones are covering them up.
3: Yeah, that's your answer right there. I also
2: have my BB-8 cardigan, which I don't know if I should be proud or ashamed to say is not my only Star Wars cardigan. (laughs)
1: Uh, Sam, you are not wearing a Star Wars cardigan or Star Wars
3: earrings. I I feel a little underdressed now, frankly. I feel like I made some bad sartorial choices this morning. You didn't bring your
2: Lando cape either. I
3: did not, sadly. Um, Yeah, I can totally rock that. Um, But yeah, I I mean, inevitably I will go see – you know Any and all Star Wars movies, I mean, I, I quite literally grew up with these things. I mean, the first movie came out when I was three. Um, they've been a part of my entire life. I now have a, a child who I've gotten into them and is excited for them. And I will, you know, for better or for worse, I am the sucker who will keep seeing them as long as they keep putting them out. So, yes, I will keep seeing Star Wars movies. I may um, grow increasingly resentful of them if more of them are like Solo. But, um disney has my money regardless
1: yeah i mean it's really frustrating to me that i will also see any star wars movie that's made at least at the current rate at which they're made like not only because it is basically all of our jobs to see (laughs) see these movies we should say but also because i would be seeing them even if i was in a different job i think and so that's frustrating to me because it takes all pressure off disney to actually make good movies uh I think the only thing I can say is I'm definitely not going to see the Star Wars movie again. You know, I saw Force Awakens multiple times in the theater. I saw The Last Jedi multiple times in the theater. I think that was maybe partly for my job, but definitely not all for this job. This movie I'm definitely not going to see again in the theater. And so I think that is the only bit of like, take that, Disney, I can say. (laughs) I'm only going to see see it it once. once.
3: Take that.
2: Well, I will go by myself, you guys.
1: You're going to see it
3: again?
2: I'll see this again.
3: I got, a, I got a kid oh. to take, so I'm going to see it again. But, you know, m- perhaps I will let my mind drift.
1: <sighs> all right. Well, there's, there's no, no hope for any of us because we all see Star Wars movies multiple times, whether they're good or not. But
3: all right. We are, we are the problem, basically. Sorry.
1: <laughs> all right. Well, I suppose I look forward to talking about this again when <laughs> we get the next mediocre solo movie. Hopefully it will be better than mediocre. Uh, Marissa, I hope you'll come back. Thanks for uh, coming on. Thanks, Forrest. Thanks, Sam. Thank you please subscribe to the Slate Spoilers special podcast feed. And if you like the show, please rate and review it in the Apple Podcast Store or wherever you get your podcasts. If you have suggestions for movies or TV shows, we should spoil. Or if you have any other feedback you'd like to share, please send it to spoilers at slate.com. Our producer is Daniel Schrader. For Sam and Marissa, I'm Forrest Wickman. Thanks for listening.
0: It's time for today's Lucky Land Horoscope with Victoria Cash.